um, it was about a month ago that we were just going to take a few minutes to talk to somebody in the group about something that had moved us in the morning. And I was sitting across the aisle from Phyllis, and I, I shared one thing with her, so I wrote one poem about what I shared with her, and one poem about what she shared with me. Because even that one moment just stayed so deeply within me, and um, you know, I'm, you probably picked it randomly. To I don't know if you had planned for us to do that or not. Um, and Phyllis had just come back from being ill. I hope this is okay to share. <laughs> this is about the doll. Is that okay? It's called Talisman. Phyllis tells me about the women who made her a doll. The soft, unformed body, a talisman. Passed from house to house, each friend adding what is needed. These women have become like Isis, I think, the way she searched for Osiris, walking miles to gather back the scattered limbs of what was lost. I see Phyllis's friends, the ones who made her this doll in their homes at night, kids, dogs, TVs, finally silent. How mindfully these women work. Each stitch mends the rent in the body. How when their hands lift the needle, pull the cotton thread in and out. It is like a breath. Such careful shape, this love. Such precision. It really moved me a lot that these people had made you a doll. <laughs> and I wrote a poem about what I spoke to her um, about poetry, because I've been listening to poetry as I come up, and how much poetry is like mindfulness. And there's a poem by Isa. Um, I always feel like poetry is like the breath of the person. You really can enter into their body. And even in translation, Iso, who's a famous Japanese haiku poet, wrote a very small poem that's been, of course, variously translated um, on the death of his two-year-old son, which has haunted me my whole life, by the way, these lines. So I wrote a poem I had been thinking about it, and I spoke a little bit, I spoke about poetry in general, and a little bit about Issa. And Issa's poem, when he saw his two-year-old die, was just, the world of dew is the world of dew, and yet, and yet. So I wrote a poem called Dew. When Issa watched his son, saw scarlet fever scorch his smooth cheeks, 
it reminded him of the great fires, the way they would always rise from the south, lick across the rooftops of Kyoto to ride the south wind. Watching this, Issa knew that his son had become like the small red papers waving at the temple doors, scraps of prayers left by the people. How quickly they burn. When Issa held his child for the last time, saw the boy's eyes darken, color leaking into the hard ground, he took his grief like a great breath and blew it into a vessel of form. Issa used words to paint the face of his son. Two short years, a sweetness so swift it entered and left, a brief memory first due. Thank you very much, Gail. Um, and I'm really glad that you brought that today and read it today. It's what I wanted to talk about beginning today and for the next 10 weeks that we're together here. It's really what, what the what I think the point is of spiritual practice, of spiritual quest in general, most specifically what the Buddha taught. And it's completely appropriate to, uh, to begin by, by mentioning the pain, the inevitable pain of life, uh, given the condition of uh, life as due, as ephemeral as the coming and going of everything in form and the necessary sadness that comes and the, the freedom, the liberation, the, uh, I don't want to say antidote because it isn't the antidote to pain, it's the counterbalance to pain, the potential of loving that's the counterbalance to it. The fact that um, we each of us, stitch by stitch, act by act, mend each other's lives, mend our own. Lex Hickson, who was a Buddhist teacher and a spiritual teacher of really great breath of mind 
um, who died in these not-so-distant years, just a few years ago, said perhaps human relationship is the most holy of sacraments. That I think if I if if I think of that in um, Buddhist words, I would say um, that the pain of feeling separate, the pain of the illusion of anyone that is separate, separate from everything else, is the fundamental is a fundamental source of suffering. Seeing through that separateness, seeing in fact that the whole of life experience is a web of connection and interrelationship. Not because we make it that, but because it is that. And that when we truly come home to ourselves, that's what we come home to is the fact that there has never been, isn't now, and won't ever be anything but connections causally linked in which everything that arises and passes in our lives, in us and between us, is a part of that great, amazing web of interconnectedness out of which we are never lost, because there's nothing separate that gets lost. Then we're home. And that the context of that connection is love. We had a really uh, extraordinary celebration here yesterday afternoon of the life of Susan Dachins. And people who have knew and have come today for the first time uh, may not know that Susan Dachins lived in Marin County for a long time and was a part of the Spirit Rock community for a long time. And um, left this lifetime last Thursday morning, just soon after midnight last Thursday morning. And there was a uh, celebration of her life here yesterday afternoon. Her partner, Linda, is in the back row. Her daughter, Mary Beth, is with Linda. Some of her friends came in with Linda this morning. And they and um, surely upwards of 200, maybe near to 250, I think, of their um, very close friends and uh, relatives and associates in all the very many ways in which they connected in the world were here. And uh, it really was a celebration of Susan's life. And uh, what made it so celebratory was that everyone who talked about her, the liturgy was a liturgy of stories. People came individually up front and told about their connection to Susan and their story and there, something special that had happened in their life with Susan. And it was a, really a continual story that had as the fundamental theme, uh, the theme of love. What people said about Susan, you think about what do you want people to say about you when it's the time for people to say about you? People said, I have never felt so unconditionally loved 
in my relationship with Susan. If I wanted to say that as the Buddha might have said it, I would say, uh, Susan uh, reflected that understanding of um, non-self so well that no sense of separate self obscured her ability to see everyone in their complete and wonderful wholeness. And she saw them wholly and truly, and they knew that they were seen. (coughs) There wasn't a Susan with any opinion that got in the way. They also said she was so completely uncritical. If the Buddha would have said that, he would have said, maybe. Uh, Susan was so uncomplicated with views of good or bad that she didn't hold to any fixed views and opinions. There's a wonderful teaching of the Buddha where I'll be close to it, but probably not exact in this, because I'll do this from memory. He said... um, People who uh, don't cherish opinions are comfortable, and they're free. He said, whereas people who have fixed opinions go around the world annoying people. (laughs) (laughs) So she didn't annoy people. The thing with opinions is they're just opinions. They're worth about the air that they're written on, really. I mean, they're... They're just opinions, just a thought. It's not writ somewhere in stone. Trouble with a view is we don't know that we have a view. We think it's the truth. When we talk about the Buddha, uh, as we will today and in weeks to come, I don't think of him as going forth on his search and saying, I'm going out to get enlightened. He said, I want to know the truth of things. I really want to know the truth of suffering and the end of suffering. And we can't really know the truth ever if we're trapped in a view. And we can't know that we're trapped in a view most of the time. It seems to me this is true. Everyone else's is a view, but mine is true. (laughs) Other people said Susan was so completely accepting. Again, I think if I were the Buddha, I would say we can be accepting if we're not guarding. If you think about the, the body stance that might accompany accepting, you think of it as this. It's the opposite of rejecting or pushing away or cringing or hiding. Accepting is like this. It's completely unguarded. It's fearless. That's what we do when we're not frightened. We're not frightened when we're not stuck in views, when we're not protecting a separate self. We know there's nothing to protect. You don't have to be frightened because there's nothing to be frightened of. You know, you don't hold any ill will on anyone. There's nothing to be frightened of. You're completely safe. And you don't get to that place. I think we're born in that place. I think we learn this other place. If we're fortunate, we don't learn it so much that we can't relax it. And if we're having trouble relaxing it, 
if we're fortunate, I think we learn practices that help us see the source of my suffering is my own being fixed in a view. If I can't drop the view right now, I'm really so respectful of the fact that when we've taken on a view that frightens us and has separated us, it's frightened us enough so that even seeing it, it's not very easy to say, okay, I'm just dropping that view, it's a source of suffering, ready, set, go, it's gone. If we could, we would. I think it's a question of learning over and over again by practicing. And it's not so much, I think, this is what I think it is learning. I think it's learning the pain that's associated with being closed and the end of pain and suffering that's associated with being accepting and opening. That's why when we give the instructions for mindfulness practice, we say, here it is, be awake to whatever comes up in the mind and whatever comes up in the body. And allow it to be there. Bar the door to nothing. Then what you discover from it is we can manage. Actually, we're really invulnerable. The heart is fine. Things will come up that are painful, things that will come up that are disagreeable in the mind, and they'll pass. It doesn't make us impervious to difficult experiences. That's why uh, Isa's poem is so important. It is due. It's all due. It's all passing. It's all ephemeral. And it's tremendously sad. The story that's sometimes told is that students ask the Zen master, you've taught us that life and death are inexorably part of the fabric of experience is not a problem with dying it is what everybody does that there's nothing to fear that there's no one who's born and no one who dies why are you crying and the answer to that is i'm very sad there isn't a problem about that sadness comes and goes with loss and pain sometimes people say in thinking about uh, as they discover that they've become more serious about their uh, mindfulness practice, they say, I'm afraid I'll become too vulnerable. And I don't think there's such a thing. <coughs> I don't think there's such a thing. I, I think what we all want is to be exquisitely vulnerable and to have uh, around that vulnerability the sense of being able to rest in the natural heart that we all came, uh, well, that we all are, that will hold it. I read a poem, I was reminded of it earlier this morning, some weeks ago, here in class, uh, by uh, Yehuda Amichai, who was an Israeli poet, uh, wrote in Hebrew, but much of his poetry is translated into English who died in the year 2000. Um, and it's a poem that uh, uses the theme of Ecclesiastes and uh, refutes the theme of Ecclesiastes where it says a time to laugh and a time to cry, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to weep and a time to rejoice. He said, I don't think we have enough time 
to do all of that separately. We have to do it all together at the same time. He said Ecclesiastes was wrong. <laughs> I don't remember the whole poem, but that line I remember. Ecclesiastes was wrong. We don't have enough time. And I really think that that's what we are discovering, wanting to discover in our practice, that we're going to have to do it all at the same time. We have to cry and laugh and fall in love and be brokenhearted and feel like we can't do it anymore and do it again all at the same time. People said about uh, Susan that she was the most courageous doer. She was a doer. Somebody said she was always at wherever I was, she was in front of me. Especially when we were climbing a certain mountain somewhere. She was at the top before anybody else. Had the same courage uh, working with her illness for as long as she had it. And doing all the therapies that she needed to do. And she had the same courage all the way up through the weeks and months in which she knew that uh, the cancer would not be cured. They had the same courage up to the very end. What a great teaching that was to discover that courage can exist without hope, without hope for a specific thing. The courage to be with the moment I remember thinking to myself at some point when I finally understood what mindfulness practice was about, which was, uh, I guess I'm not embarrassed to say, but for a while I was, some considerable time after I began my practice. You might think you're supposed to understand it when you start, but I didn't, and not for a long time. And um, not sure I... Uh, had uh, what people talk about as clarity of intention. You should always start with clarity of intention. Didn't have that either. Uh, I think now I do, and probably three years from now I'll say, you remember three years ago? I'm pretty sure I, had, I know what I'm doing. I, I know why I am practicing. Or I know why it would be impossible. What's the alternative? Will we do this short life asleep? There is no alternative. The only way to live this life, of which there is not enough time to do everything, and we have to do it all at the same time together, is now. But in the very beginning, I didn't know that. So I didn't have clarity of intention. And I didn't know what to hope for, really. And I thought to myself, at some point, I thought um, the only prayer I could figure out that I wanted to make that matched my experience of mindfulness practice was, uh, may it be possible for me to be here fully for this next moment of my experience. It might be the same prayer now. I might have the same prayer now. I want to be alive this moment and the next moment as well. I want to be alive up to the very last moment. And I can't require any more of life because uh, 
important. I, I, it doesn't fall for any of us to end this life easily. Sometimes end it abruptly, but then not easily. And sometimes in a lingering way and not easily. I think about it, it's hard to get in and it's hard to get out. You know, but, uh, and it's hard when we're here, too. So, uh, <coughs> but it has the great potential of, uh, it has the great potential of all of it being surrounded by love. A friend of mine uh, told me about the philosopher uh, McMurray, a Scottish philosopher who had given her the image of uh, hands. And he said that, you know, when we're born, a pair of hands catches us. And uh, when we die, another pair of hands does whatever needs to be done with us, puts us into the ground or puts us into whatever needs to happen with what's left of the physical body after it isn't here anymore, after it isn't viable anymore. He said, and in between, we move from hand to hand. And I've thought about it um, so much as it it resonates for me so much as an image. Um, I I really like the visual image of people holding hands. You walk in a crowd of people. First, if you walk walk, uh, in the street, you see parents holding the hands of children. And I like to watch what parent can still have the hand down and the child has the hand up you know that they're really little and then at some point they're holding in both hands are dead and uh, wonderful to watch all kinds of people at all different ages old people and very young people or contemporary people or old and old people walking and holding hands it's really lovely to, to watch but I have the sense that if we're lucky, we could each of us think to ourselves, think now, who holds my hand? Not even, not exclusively, who holds my physical hand? Who, by being in this life, holds my hand? I have the... I have the visceral memory of holding my mother's hand. And um, my mother died in 1959, so it's 43 years old, that memory. But I remember what the inside of her hand felt like. But I have the uh, more important mental memory of having been held in love. So what people said yesterday about Susan was she was the most courageous doer. She met every moment of her experience with gusto and with bravery and with courage. She lived her life until the end of it. She enjoyed uh, the massages that she had until the end when her body was very, 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 very limited. Someone came and gave her a pedicure with purple nail polish in the last week of her life. And she loved it and said it. 
and she died very easily. Let her life go just between one breath and the next. And the last thing that that I want to say that people said about her that I remembered afterwards, which I think has to do with that ability to live fully and let go, to be completely open to life, which reminded me of this stance where you say, I'm not afraid of anything, I'm fearless. Because I know I have nothing to lose. There's nothing to lose except this moment of life. If I close off, I miss this moment. If I open and don't protect what isn't there to protect anyway, which is really what's the essence of all spiritual paths, we're really quite safe. Then the whole of the world comes into me and I live it. So I think about this stance and the other image that someone said, which was she was the best hugger in the world. Now the hugger in the world is the best hugger in the world and that's the opposite. But the best hugger embraces but it doesn't pull too hard, and it lets go at the right time. But you know you got hugged. And there's a way in which the Buddhist image that comes up from that, in my mind, is that we meet each experience, and we really feel it. It is our experience. We don't look at it. There's sometimes a way of uh, uh, misunderstanding the instructions for mindfulness practice that make it sound like a catalog, like a, um, a, a lepidopterist looking at butterflies, say, well, there's an anger, and there's a fear, and there's an anger, and there's a fear, like it's someone else's. Like, it, like it's a thing, but not a visceral experience. But really, here's an anger, here's a fear, here's a lust, here's a trembling, here's a palpitating, Here's a warmth, here's a cold, and here it's gone. And everything is coming and going and coming and going. Not out there, but here, in this body, right now, viable, in this body as part of the experience of being in form, which is not a permanent experience, coming and going, nothing graspable, nothing to hold on to, nothing to protect, nothing separate from anything that else that's happening. was so clear in all the sharing yesterday that um, what happens between people is that everyone becomes who they are or is made what they are and informs what everyone else will be as a result of the comings together that we have in our life, is all a mutual experience. It's happening to everyone. It isn't happening from someone to someone. It's happening in a world of connections, happening to each other all the time. From beginningless beginning to endless end, and nothing ever falls out of it, really. A physical body comes to the end of its viability, but memory lasts, the connections that were made, the love that was generated gets generated generation to generation afterwards. That there isn't anything that's separate. It's 
Susie's daughter talked about the fact that someday her children or her grandchildren will know the stories of their grandmother or their great-grandmother and that her genes will be in them. But more, her stories will be in them. They'll be a part of her lineage. I think about that a lot um, because I now have, uh, I'm in the, the generation in my family of being the elder, and so I have grandchildren. And I remember my grandparents, and I know the stories of my great grandparents, and even something about my great grandparents, although not much because uh, uh, they could none of them read or write, so that I have no letters that they wrote, or, but I know stories about them. Um, and they, they were until my father came with his parents to the United States uh, uh, in Poland or in, in Austria, uh, mostly in very, very small towns. Um, so I know something about uh, what they did to make a living, mostly to just barely eke out a survival. And uh, I think about the fact that uh, my first cousin's child is uh, the quarterback of the MIT football team. (laughs) And I think to myself, that's so amazing and so odd and so wonderful. And a piece of his great-great-great-grandfather who couldn't read and never heard of the MIT football team <laughs> or football. We really just, all of us are making the world every minute with every action. And, and everybody is inheriting the whole world because of everybody else's actions. And the Buddha taught about non-self, about interconnection, I think that's what he meant. That everything is interconnected. You, you probably all have heard the joke. I, I don't even know if it's funny about what did the Buddha say to the hot dog vendor? Do you know that? Make me one with everything. <laughs> We are one with everything. (laughs) We never, ever weren't. It's illusory to make separateness. It's the great problem of the world that we make distinctions and separateness based on who we look like or where we came from or what we know or don't know or our gender or our age or anything else. There isn't anyone whose life is in any way separate from anyone else. Maybe people begin to understand that more in um, in this modern age when we uh, recognize uh, uh, in what fragile balance we live together on this uh, third rock from the sun. Uh, 
But the Buddha knew about it a long time ago. So what I'm hopeful that we'll talk about in the next, starting now and in the next 10 weeks, is who was the Buddha and what did he teach and what is his practice and what are we doing here? I read a book yesterday. I'll tell you my books as we're going along so that if you want to be reading along and doing your own homework in these next weeks, this is a book called Coming Home, The Experience of Enlightenment in Sacred Tradition by Lex Hickson. It's wonderful. I'm reading it now for the third or the fourth time. Uh, I needed to get it through the used book tracing of uh, of Amazon because it's it's out of print and mine have disappeared. I keep giving them away. There's a wonderful book, I think. Be, it, for me, it's always been a wonderful book because what Lex Hickson has done is taken uh, 10 or 12 spiritual traditions and not explained that whole tradition in great detail. So it's not the Religions of Man book. It's in each tradition, how do people understand the experience of coming home? That's what it means. How, what, what do we call? What do we call the experience of coming home and what do we call the practice of getting there? True nature, original mind. This is what we come home to. True nature, original mind. Turiya, Tao, Godhead, Allah, Divine Mother, Messiah nature, Christ nature. And how do we get there? Process of enlightenment, awakening is the one. God realization, self-knowledge, Kensho, Gnosis, illumination, coming home, and holy ecstasy. They're all the same. As are sage, guru, tzaddik, saint, and shaman. Here's an image that he has. He said, imagine that we are uh, wandering through a vast cathedral. Countless stained glass windows, radiant in the darkness, represent the modes of worship and ways of understanding that humanity has evolved throughout its history. Some windows picture divine presence through personal forms or attributes, and seekers worship before these windows with devotion. Other seekers, preferring the way of wisdom, contemplate stained glass windows that present nothing personal, simply esoteric patterns evoking primal harmony and unity. Devotion and wisdom are alternate ways to enlightenment. Some sacred traditions interweave both. I think Buddhism interweaves both. I think it interweaves both, and in, in there, there are two ways that I understand that. The way of awakening through the mind and the way of awakening through the heart. Through the mind, I think, is the practice of awakened attention, which is the practice of mindfulness meeting every moment with investigative, balanced, open awareness. What will this moment teach me? There is no moment that will not teach me about the ephemeral nature of experience. Every moment has to teach me that because it's just a moment. It's this, and then it's that, and then it's this, and then it's that. The very experience of breath in and breath out has taught me ephemerality. 
Nothing lasts. Nothing at all lasts. Every moment will teach me about suffering. The suffering that's part of clinging. Even in the breath. If I hold on to this experience, if I take in a breath and it's wonderful, it's wonderful, but it doesn't last. It'll get uncomfortable. I have to let it go. That's very comfortable. I have to let that go and try again. As long as my breathing is an unconflicted, uncomplicated way for me, it's not a lot of suffering. It just happens. But things really need to come and go. Easily. Because they do. It's really any connection that comes up in the mind any um, imperative in the mind to have things other than how they are when they cannot be other is what is the source of suffering. doesn't mean, by the way, the breath is a complicated thing to talk about because we all need to breathe. You think about the kinds of desires that come up. I need to have this. And it's not the breath of food, which are the fundamental needs of viability. But I need to have this thing. I need to have this relationship. I need to have this experience. We all have those kinds of feelings. Not going to stop having them. It's not about not having the feelings. It's about the imperative that sometimes comes with those feelings. I must have this. I must have it now. I can't rest unless I have this. Those are really those causes of suffering. It's the imperative in the mind that can't relax into just being. That's what suffering is. So maybe the breath is not the best example. Maybe just as we sit and the breath comes and goes because we need to breathe and we feel wonderful and relaxed and at ease, mind spacious, and suddenly we remember something that's happening in my life. Came up this morning in our early morning precepts class and somebody said, I suddenly have a feeling about someone in my life about whom envy comes up. And suddenly, all this envy and resentment comes up in me. It's really a toxin in me. It is, you know, isn't it? You suddenly find yourself caught in an envy and a lust. I have to have that. Why do they have it? I should have it. It's an aggrieved feeling of the mind. We can't not have it. If we could take a vow on aggrieved feelings, we would all take it right now. If, 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 there, if, there were a, if, if in this water pitcher there were a magic herb that were the antidote to aggrieved feelings, we would all rush up, wouldn't we? It would be the ultimate sacramental drink, you know, purify my heart so I can truly love all beings. It would be it. The problem is that there isn't the ultimate antidote, because when we finish with this aggrieved feeling, here comes the next one. And then you finish with this one, and here comes the next one. There is an aggrieved feeling 
waiting on every street corner. <laughs> Do you know what I thought of in that? Uh, it, it may be the most preponderant. <laughs> Whenever I walk on a city street, I'm ever so careful to watch my feet, and I walk in the squares so the millions of bears who wait on the corners all ready to eat the sillies who walk on the lines in the street <laughs> go back to their lairs. And I say to them, bears, just look how I'm walking in all of the squares. That's um, Milne. Christ- yeah, A.A. A. Milne. Yeah. We, are, we, we, are, we were six, we are six. When we were six. And it's called... Um, Bears, I guess, or lines and squares. But anyway, uh, there's a way in which that makes a lot of sense to me in terms of mindfulness practice. Uh, Not that we'll get to be rigid, but uh, what the Buddha taught is minding the sense doors for what comes in, because unless we live in a cave around us all the time, we'll be the millions of bears waiting on the corner all ready to eat the sillies who aren't paying attention to the bears that are there. And they eat us up, and then we're stuck with them. And, uh, or we eat them up. Oh, no, I think the other way. They eat us up, and then we're, we're gone. Uh, and they're waiting all over the place. <coughs> Do you know, remember the beginning of Alice in Wonderland when she falls down um, the rabbit hole? and encounters all those uh, bottles and potions and liquids in little bottles that say, drink me, you know, all over the place. There are markers that say, do this, do that. They're seductive markers. Buy this, do that. Look at me, I'm attractive. You could do this. This is a pleasant experience. All over the place. Just not to say that we should necessarily become completely abstemious in our life, but to be able to say, I see you, wait a minute, is this something that would be good for me to do or not good for me to do? Is this something that's going to be in the direction of happiness for me? Or is this going to be a momentary hit and ultimately not cause me happiness and not cause happiness for other people? Is it going to cause me, in fact, despair or confusion? Will I feel guilt or remorse? So that, I think, is mindfulness practice. What's happening? Keep your eyes open. Lines and squares. The third thing that you can see in every single breath that we take, if we really look at it with, a, with a, uh, an investigative attention that is seeking to see what is most profoundly true, is that this very same breath that we take is we take it dependent on everything. We take it dependent on the viability of this organism, that it still works. We take it dependent on the viability of the whole earth, that the trees are still breathing. Because we and the trees are breathing each other in and out all the time. So we need the trees to be breathing. And we need the grasses to be growing. We need everyone to be recycling so the trees and we will continue to breathe together. We need to sustain this planet that we live on. 
There isn't a breath that we take that isn't dependent on everyone else. Because I personally cannot sustain the whole world as a planet on my own. So that as I go forth and as you go forth in our lives, we need to be teaching that to everybody we meet by how we are and how we act and how we do and what we say. So that's a, we can learn every single, we can learn those three fundamental characteristics of life, of impermanence, of um, the suffering that comes as a reflection of a mental imperative to have things be other than what they are. Need to have the heart that can say things, and the mind, to say things are what they are because of everything that ever was. It's a lawful cosmos, not a mistake. Just as the sun comes up in a place where we expect it to every day, and the earth has not fallen out of its orbit, it's a lawful, natural world. We step off cliffs, we fall down. It's a lawful world of interactions, and every action has a consequence. It's both the way of inspiring me to make a difference in the world, because I can't change the whole world by myself, but I can't put down my little piece of the world either, because in a sense it's all dependent on each of us holding up our particular piece of the world. And that particular understanding of its lawful also is the imperative to forgive because nothing can be other than what it is. It's the lawful result of whatever was. Doesn't mean it's okay. Doesn't mean it doesn't need to be changed. It doesn't mean that there's some very profoundly, there are things very profoundly wrong in this world. They're not, they're not incorrect. Incorrect would be the right word. I suppose. But they're not mistakes. They happen because of what's gone before and actions that people have had before. But they could change. They're here because of actions and they can change because of actions. It's a really important piece of uh, the notion of transformation. We are not doing this for ourselves. We're doing it to make the world different. I think that Maybe that's where I'd like to end today, that we talk about these practices of wisdom and the practice of love and devotion, which, by the way, I was going to say is the second past. Certainly to start with seeing clearly so that we'll behave with love. The other part of it is metta practice, behaving with love, so that we'll relax and then we'll see clearly. I actually don't see them as separate practices. I think this is the ultimate path of devotion. I will be in love with my life. I've been thinking to myself, if I am not in love with this moment, even if it's difficult, cherishing it, and if I have not forgiven everyone, then the obligation is mine to do it. I am not seeing clearly. I can start from that path. And I can start from the path of I am determined because I know from my own experience that the, the cause of suffering is that my suffering is dependent on my heart and my mind. 
and the pain of the world will be changed by my addressing this so I can address that. Is I think the source of the passion that I want to bring to my practice. So that's where I, I'll end us for today. Uh, and that's what we'll do for the next, uh, for all of January and February and into March. I want systematically to tell you the life of the Buddha uh, and uh, the spread of Buddhism and I, throughout Asia and then into the world. And I want to do it intertwined with uh, instructions for practice. So we'll do that. Let's sit for one minute. May the merit of our practice, the sincerity of our intention, the merit of our coming together as a community in devotion and intention, determined to awaken our own hearts and minds, to the suffering in the world, to the suffering in our own minds, so that through clear sight and through the loving potential of our heart, which is our birthright, we are most fully able to address the pain of the world and be contributors to the end of the world's suffering. May all beings everywhere be peaceful. May all beings everywhere be happy. May all beings everywhere come to the end of suffering. Thank you.